0: One of the things the Buddha reminded us over and over again is that it's uh, to meet with and hear Dhamma from noble ones and to associate with people who are people of virtue and integrity. This is a essential cause or condition for us to realise the Dhamma. So it's something we can reflect on our good fortune that we have. A living Sangha we have. Ajahn Chah and his disciples to guide us and teach us and explain the Dhamma. Even though the Buddha passed away two and a half thousand years ago we can still associate with people of integrity and practitioners who've seen the Dhamma. Teaching the Dhamma is often translated as admonition from the suttas giving admonition and in our modern culture it's often something people don't like the sound of. We often have perceptions of admonition being to be told off or criticized it brings up images of stern teachers stern parents policemen government officials and so on but obviously admonition the way the Buddha taught and encouraged bhikkhus to teach is coming from wisdom and compassion, and it can be simply explaining what we do in the practice, what rules and practices we follow, meditation techniques, reflections and so on, and this is all admonition. It's not necessarily when somebody's done wrong either. Simply admonition can be explaining Dhamma on a deeper level pointing to the Dhamma that can help somebody understand things better. So it's part of our lives is because we are admonished. We admonish each other. We're admonished by teachers. We admonish the laity, meaning we explain the Dhamma, point out the Dhamma to them. But obviously every practitioner has to learn how to admonish themselves, meaning to bring up, point out the Dhamma, the Vinaya, in a situation, or at a certain time, one has to learn how to do it for oneself. Atano jyoti is a phrase Ajahn Chah talked about often, being able to admonish oneself. So one is becoming responsible for one's own practice, one's karma, arousing energy, effort, and reflecting on what's right and wrong, what's the truth, what's not the truth, and so on. We have to learn how to do that for ourselves. But first of all, we rely on teachers and other Sangha members to help. Again, in our culture, just receiving teachings which often go directly to the cause of suffering, craving, attachment, kilesa, can stir up the very thing that is causing us suffering, our own sense of self, ego, conceit, attachment to views, opinions our own thoughts and knowledge, what's right, what's wrong. The very thing that causes us suffering fights back sometimes, we get defensive, evasive, and so on. So we have to learn how to appreciate the value of receiving teachings, reflections, admonitions. This is how, well, this is a very important part of our training, how the noble ones and disciples of the Buddha can pass on Dhamma to us. It's a training in wise reflection, contemplation, Learning how to be mindful enough just to reflect on the words that we hear, teachings that we are given, the rules of training, the practices that we do, how to reflect with wisdom, with mindfulness, in a calm and reasonable way, so that we can learn from our experience. We're always admonished to bring up mindfulness in the present moment, clear comprehension and then wisdom, understanding. This is the way Ajahn Chah taught over and over again and learning to be mindful in all postures, all activities. Keeping the mind in the middle not letting it get caught into reactions, liking and disliking, approval, disapproval, so that it's in a fit and healthy state to contemplate truth. The more we can sustain our mindfulness and awareness, the more our mind can contemplate and see things as they are, from a place of calm, equanimity, Just learning to mindfully go about the routine of the monastery, use the requisites, the things that we're involved with closely every day. day. So Gen Cha always reminded us, learn how to live simply, be content with what's available in terms of food and accommodation, medicine, robes. The only way we can learn contentment is by being mindful as we use these things and reflecting and setting aside craving and desire and dissatisfaction that might might arise. Every day we use the requisites, so every day we have a the duty to reflect on them contemplate them you see if you get lax in this then the mind starts to always be looking for more better different things easily falls into dissatisfaction and then all the other aspects of the training and the meditation become more difficult if we have contentment Then we're at our ease, it's easy. Life in the monastery is easy. It's a bit like stray dogs in Thailand when they come to temples and monasteries. When they arrive, they're always very easy to look after. You can throw a few crumbs or a few rice grains down and they'll eat them up with gratitude. But once they stay in the temple a long time, they get used to it. They won't take plain rice anymore. They want a bit of curry or flavor with the rice. And then, if they stay longer, they will only eat meat or fish. They won't even touch rice anymore. Our minds are like that, with sensuality, sense-desire, particularly around requisites, the basic necessities of life. Once we get used to them, then we always want to start getting things a little bit better and more. Craving slips in and then the mind is not peaceful when we come to meditate. So Ajahn Chah is always reminding us just to be content with what's available, the way things are, and work to achieve that, to be at ease with the Vinaya training, to be at ease with the place, the weather, the food, and so on. Often it's the most basic aspects of our life that we overlook because of repetition and habit. We're often looking for dhamma up in very high places, in books and talks and trying to imagine realization, insight, nibbana, and overlooking the more obvious places where craving attachment and the cause of suffering arises. So we have to reflect on the use of the requisites every day. There was that monk in the time of the Buddha who became obsessed with his robes and never happy with the state of his robes. The quality of the cloth was not good enough the color, not good enough, the way they were sewn, not good enough, always unhappy, then he caught a disease and was close to death, so his sister out of compassion offered, is there anything you need, said oh I'd really like some well made robes of good cloth." all he would think about, because she had great compassion for him, she did it. She purchased some nice cloth, sewed it into a robe, offered to him. He was so hef- happy in the last days of his life, and that happiness was, deta- was based on his attachment to his robes. And when he died, he became a, a bug actually attached to the robe the only way he could stay close to the robes as he changed from this realm into the next very famous story even attachment to the robes can lead you to be reborn as a little bug in that case it was the good fortune to be a disciple of the Buddha. The Buddha in his wisdom and special knowledge knew that that monk had been reborn as a bug. And he also knew the state of mind of that monk, or ex-monk. And as is usual, when a monk dies, the other monks were going to divide up his requisites, Bhangsukula, The Buddha knew that that little bug was still obsessed with the robe. If it was given away to another monk, he'd be so angry and so upset. When it died from that realm of the bug realm, it'd be reborn in hell. So the Buddha, out of compassion and wisdom, told the monks, "I'll oh, just delay the splitting up of this monk's requisites for a week. We'll do it later and a bug only lasts for a week. So he had a week to enjoy the living on that robe. Then he died and was reborn in heaven because he had his good karma from the time he was a monk before. Otherwise he would have fallen into a terrible state of anger and been reborn in hell. This is the good fortune of having a noble one, great wisdom and compassion to help avert disaster. But our mind is like that. We keep becoming obsessed with the things around us because there's nothing else to be obsessed with. Our craving attachment comes out in very ordinary things like food and robes sleep work people very common when we begin our practice in the monastery we easily get angered with the people around us in the community the ones who visit just on a daily basis and bring food it's easy to have kindness for them and then the ones who we actually live with we forget the kindness and get irritated with each other very easily. So again, we have to learn how to keep re-establishing goodwill, friendliness, just as if we were all relatives, relatives in the Dhamma, so we can forgive each other and carry on with our practice without carrying a lot of heavy negative thoughts around with us which prevent us from developing states of calm we constantly have to be learning how to contemplate back reflect back on our own mental behavior our actions, our speech what we're thinking about Because this is the underlying cause for our peace, or lack of peace, on a daily basis. We have to really train ourselves in doing this, to be reflective, observe what's going on, what am I thinking, how do I relate to other people, to the requisites, and so on. This is a skill, it's something we have to sometimes push ourselves to do. And most people start the practice of meditation just seeking seeking quietness, bliss, stillness, which is not bad at all, but bliss alone cannot bring you to realization and the end of suffering. Another common experience in monasteries is we want our own space and time so that we can develop these states of calm. We want to be able to sit and walk, follow our own routine. Sometimes we don't want to have to do anything to do with other people, other duties, other responsibilities. Just want our own time so that we can soak up as much bliss and happiness as we can. But often the underlying attitude is very self-centered and very attached, full of craving. We want quick results and we want to hold on to the results. But of course that kind of craving will always lead to suffering when things don't go away. We don't get the time or the space. People come and bother us as we think. Then we blame them, blame the place, blame the people for our loss of bliss, loss of samadhi, loss of calm. It's very, very common. Someone was telling me yesterday about the meditation center they went to and the meditators there were all very experienced and everyone could sit four or five hours without getting up. The teacher was very proud of his students and this person went to stay there and they thought, hmm, this is very inspiring. I'm sure these people must be sotapanas at least. Then one day they're in the hall, everyone's meditating for many hours, and then a stray cat walked into the hall. It was just a kitten one week old without a mother, so it was starving, skinny, looking for food, and it walked up to one of the ladies meditating. Got to her knee. She picked it up and threw it across the room. Get rid of it. They notice, hmm, can sit four or five hours without moving, but one little cat, straight away anger arises, want to get rid of it. Meditation is like this. We tend to be craving so much to want to be peaceful, to want to have special realizations. So if we can blame something for n- not getting what we want, we will blame a cat blame another monk blame the weather blame the kuti, the food the teaching, whatever we tend to do this rather than looking at the root cause which is our underlying craving wanting special states wanting results wanting to hang on to them and not wanting any interference but that's not real wisdom isn't it, that's not coming from contemplation, that's just trying to maintain states of calm, And maybe even we attain them but then when the mind comes out of that state you can fall straight back into delusion anger, greed literally within a few seconds that's a sign that we haven't been training in contemplation or reflection yet sure we might understand how to discipline ourselves enough to concentrate on an object. There's not the all-round knowing or the wisdom, the contemplation that Ajahn Chah said is vital for realization. Sometimes he'd say you have to practice with your eyes open, meaning not just to cut yourself off and Try and control everything so you have everything the way you want. But sometimes you have to be willing to look at pain. Teach yourself in painful or unpleasant situations to see where craving and attachment, attachment is causing you suffering. Yeah, it's called practicing with your eyes open. Obviously there are times we practice with our eyes shut as well. Learn how to practice sense restraint, not to look at things in a way that stirs up kilesa. We also, when it comes to suffering, have to practice with our eyes open. Really look, get to know what causes us pain and suffering. Be willing to look under the surface as well. If you're always trying to control things, make it the way you want. You're not really going to learn that much from your experience even if you can attain a very deep state of samadhi all the kalesas are still sitting there under underneath waiting to come out and cause you trouble again Ajahn Chah said if you don't know what to contemplate contemplate this body just keep going through it it's the most obvious thing we have use the mind to contemplate the body in wisdom developing samadhi and go through each part hair of the head, nails, teeth, skin bones, flesh, blood all of these things when when the body's all as a acting as a unit everything's together we're complacent and we attach and identify with it as me mine as soon as a part of the body leaves the unit the whole unit immediately we start to feel repulsed and we don't want anything more to do with it A bit of snot drops off, the hair drops off. We go to the toilet, urine, excrement. We don't want anything to do with all these bits that come out of the body. But when it's all acting as a unit, we just become dull. We're not contemplating it. So really use your mind to contemplate it. The purpose of those states of calm we develop is so that you have enough peace that you can stay with the body, which is often very boring or even unpleasant to have to think about and look at. Just keep training, asking yourself questions about it, looking at it. Is there a self in any of these 32 body parts could we really identify with them as being something stable desirable beautiful and jen Cha said it's like the, uh, the fisherman's hook with the bait on it and particularly these five external body parts Air, skin, nails, teeth, what we see most in ourselves, in other people. It's got the hook underneath. It's like the, the piece of bread or the worm, whatever. The fish goes up and it can't tell there's a hook there. And it's attracted by the bait, so it takes both the bait and the hook. So only once it's swallowed the hook, it realizes the mistake and it starts to suffer. We're constantly identifying with this body because we don't question what hair and skin, nails, teeth are in ourselves or others, and we actually are just used to identifying with the beauty of it, even though it's bound to get old, sick, drop off, run away. As Ajahn Chah said yesterday, they're all just running away from us. But the mind doesn't. Recognize that. If you're ever not peaceful in meditation, then take up the body as a way to, a vehicle to develop peace. Or if you are peaceful, then turn to contemplate the body. The body, and then from that, the other candors, feeling, perception, thought formations, sense consciousness, you know, this is what we have as a human being, this is where we contemplate, this is where the Four Noble Truths will arise, this is where realization, the end of suffering comes. It's not anywhere else. We don't necessarily have to get <coughs> a degree in Buddhism or write a book on Buddhist philosophy to understand this just to establish mindfulness of the body and observe it as it is, an dukkha might be enough. In the time of the Buddha, there was one time, there was that monk, there was a layman, Jitta, the household of very, very strong faith, always supporting the Sangha invited the monks to his house for a meal and Jita had great understanding of the teachings after the meal he said, why is it that all the kinds of wrong view, as we talked about the other day, 62 kinds of wrong view, where do they come from? What leads to them arising and in what situation or what conditions do they not arise? And all the monks just sat there quietly, didn't want to answer, because "Mm, this is a complicated question. Twice he asked. On the third time, there was a new monk at the end of the line. He asked the senior monk, he said, if nobody wants to answer, can I answer? So the senior monk let him have a go. His name was Isidatta. The, all the wrong views that people hold about the self being eternal, not eternal, internal, external, all the different ways that they come about, the sort of things all the different leaders of religious sects in those days would argue about, said they come about when there's Sakaya Ditti present in the mind what we call personality view or identifi- identification with these candors as a self, a personality, when that kind of wrong view, that delusion is present, then all the other kinds of wrong view come out of that mm. one wrong view. When Sakaya Ditti is gone, all wrong views are gone, the mind becomes in line with Dhamma. So how does Sakaya Ditti arise? We take form, the body, rupa as self. We see self in Rupa, or the same as Rupa, or the Rupa as in self. The same with all the other Kandas. We see the self as vaitana, feeling. Or feeling is the same as self, or in self, or the self is in Vaitana, and so on. And this is how Sakaya, sakaya Ditti arises when people don't contemplate candors and see them as they are, then they take them as self in one way or another. And from that, all the other kinds of wrong views will form. But somebody who is listen to the Dhamma from noble ones and associated with wise, virtuous people and come to contemplate these candas and see them as they are, as impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. And then they won't take them as self. So Sakaya Ditti won't arise and all the other kinds of views won't arise. So Jitta was very happy, and all the monks were very happy. He said, Oh, you answered very well. The householder said, Oh, I'm so happy with this answer, so clear. I'd like to upatak you, give Pawarana, me, I look after all your needs for the rest of your life. Because he was still a young monk. And He was very gracious and said, oh, give my Anamodhana for your good faith and your kind offer. Then all the monks left the house and Isidatta never returned. As in so many of these stories, he was made an offer for life, but he never took it up. Just left, never to return. in one way or other, this is what the Buddha, Ajahn Chah and all our teachers are teaching us to contemplate, to look at body, feelings, perceptions, thought formation, sense consciousness. Keep looking over and over again, investigating, going deeper to really teach the mind or you might say admonish the mind to understand that it's impermanent. Body is impermanent, feeling impermanent. What is impermanent doesn't belong to us, cannot be taken as a self. Sometimes we contemplate like this and brings the mind to peace, so that it can just settle down with the breath, butto, bright, factors the samadhi arise because of the contemplation other times we just focus on the breath the mind becomes calm and then we contemplate and there's no absolute one way with this if we're practicing every day for many days months years there'll be different ways that the mind calms down, the ways that insight arise. What we always find is that both calm and insight tend to not last because they're not established yet. We haven't practiced enough and we have those times when the mind does get calm and insight seems clear. We contemplate and we can see things as impermanent, stressful, not self. But then that fades out and the mind returns to a lot of thinking and doubting. So we have to learn how to be very patient and just keep coming back to the roots of the practice, go back to the contemplation, go back to the mindfulness practice. What we have to be careful of is those times when mindfulness slips, contemplation slips, and the craving and attachment start to return, and then we get caught into self-doubt, aversion, just wanting other things, other experiences. And that's where we have to be very patient and learn how to guide the mind at those times where, the practice is more difficult. and That's a skill in itself, recognizing that. Not to get too despondent if states of Samadhi drop away, or if there's not much clarity and there's lots of desire and attachment coming up. But to learn how to deal with that skillfully. We still contemplate, we still practice mindfulness, but we have to learn how to manage that that period of time where maybe where doubt comes up proliferation comes up until we re-establish some steady mindfulness we have to learn how to talk with ourselves listen to the Dhamma talk with ourselves this is where admonition helps sometimes externally teachers other bhikkhus remind us of the Dhamma listening to talks Sometimes we do it internally. We bring up our own double reflection to get us through or point us in the right direction. We have to learn how to do this. Make use of our time, which we have plenty of, can be a Double edged sword, and you have lots of time. If you don't use your time skillfully, it can become a cause for more suffering, more proliferation, more unhappiness, more distraction, more confusion. Somebody has a lot of faith and listens to the Dhamma, oh, there's no problem. They, you give them a lot of time and they just carry on practicing automatically, and make use of their opportunity. If if our faith is a bit weak, doubts come up, then too much time on our own, sometimes we just end up in a mess. So also we have to know how to skillfully deal with those situations. Sometimes we do more service, learn chanting, help out in the monastery to get us through times when there's more doubt, more confusion. And when mind is clear, peaceful, maybe we can put more effort into sitting and walking meditation. There's always more we can do. We never have to feel lazy or at a loose end. There's always more effort to be put in into mindfulness practice, more things, more duties to do, more responsibilities to feel, more things to contemplate. So tonight is a night of meditation. Uh, we have the Patimoka at about 8.30 and then practice until on 11.30 we'll have our evening chanting tonight. Anyway, for the moment we can carry on sitting till the time for the patimokka.